This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Hey everyone, welcome back. Two weeks in a row. I should have a gold star by my name right now. I used to live for those gold stars. Didn't we all? Oh, maybe some of you didn't. Maybe some of you actually worked against the gold star. I know you types. Anyway, welcome everyone. Uh, We are recording this on June 16th. It's Thursday. It is one day after my birthday. Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, We will talk a little bit later about how I didn't receive any of your birthday wishes this year. (laughs) Unless you know my personal email. Uh, So I thought I would start the show this week. It's just me. Me and my thoughts. Yes, you get to have me and my thoughts for the next, oh, I don't know, 35, 45, 50 minutes. We'll see how long this baby lasts. Uh, we'll be playing a little uh, little comedy later, uh, a little music. I got a couple different subject matters to cover here. It's a beautiful spring, late spring day here in Southern California. We on the coast here have not had the death heat index yet Uh, but I understand if you go inland about 30 miles your hair lights on fire that's how hot it is but there's no global warming it's all good it's all good so this week uh so uh Trump we'll just just start there because you know it, it is presidential politics uh here's clearly what we've we've uh we've seen this week is that uh, there is no pivot to presidential for Trump. There just isn't there. No matter how many times one hopes, and there's not many of us who hope, but there are some people who are hoping he will pivot. Uh, Mainly the GOP establishment is hoping he will pivot. And, and maybe some of the other of us who, you know, think that at least uh, a madman isn't running for president. Uh, But there's no pivot in him. There's no pivot because there's no presidential in him. It does not exist. There's really not a presidential cell in his body. And uh, so it's been a bad couple of weeks for Trump. And uh, it's about fucking time. It's about fucking time. It's been a bad few weeks for this man because uh, he's not a good human. (laughs) He just isn't on any level. So... Uh, sorry about that if some of you listeners are Trump supporters, but uh, not not a human you'd want to be uh, stuck in a lifeboat with, really. <laughs> he's not sharing whatever water he has. Uh, he's probably not paddling with everyone else. Uh, God knows what he's doing. He's probably carving up the little bit of assets there are in some way that he gets the biggest piece of the pie. So yeah, that's uh, just wanted to mention Trump. And uh, the Clinton, uh, Bernie Sanders thing, uh, Hillary, all that stuff seems to be working out. They're making friends. I know that's upsetting some of you deeply. But uh, that that is how it works in this democracy. Uh, we don't get to burn down everything. We have to try to come together and have conversations and uh, make it work. And it's not perfect. And I'm not completely happy with it. Uh, maybe only a part of me is happy with it, but uh, 
you know, if Bernie can, uh, God, what what do we want Bernie to be? Do we want him to be like a secretary of the treasury, a whole new cabinet member? Uh, Is he in charge of uh, Wall Street, money and politics? I don't know. He's going to be in charge of something. That's all I know. He's definitely going to be in charge of something. I don't think he's going to be VP. I don't think he's interested in that. In fact, I saw something today that uh, Elizabeth Warren is on the short list from what I understand, which would be fascinating. If you didn't see her Rachel Maddow interview last week, go look it up. Uh, just <laughs> what an intelligent, amazing woman uh, who's just got balls bigger than most men in this country. So uh, that's it for presidential stuff. Um, so wanted to talk about Orlando, the shooting there. And I have to tell you that uh, I kind of checked out around all of it. I, I just, I couldn't watch any of the coverage. I was starting to wean myself off of social media. So I didn't really want to watch the whole social media dance, which happens every time there's a mass shooting. Um, it's kind of boring, the social media dance around it. Uh, it's kind of boring, the media dance around it. Uh, but this time different, uh, I just, I couldn't watch, I couldn't watch the coverage. I couldn't, I just, I can't, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of done with America right now. Uh, But I do have some thoughts about it. I, so the big thing was, and if you hear that, that's a saw. Someone, one of my neighbors is sawing something. And those really are my wind chimes, by the way. Uh, So I went online and I just, I wanted to get kind of the definitions of terrorist act and hate crime. I was really interested in that. Like, what is, what is the difference? How are they similar? So here's what I got. Uh, it was like a legal dictionary online. <laughs> you know how reliable that is. But, you know, I think this is a good way to start. So a terrorist act is considered the calculated use of violence or the threat of violence against civilians in order to attain goals that are political or religious or ideological in nature. This is done through intimidation or coercion or instilling fear. So, and people talk about terrorist acts as more of a means, like what is the action people are using? They're, they're creating terror. That's what they're doing. Um, and they're using some sort of violence or threat of violence in a way that makes us just, you know, afraid to go shopping. That's why George Bush insisted that we all go shopping, even though it made my stomach turn after 9-11. But I, I get it. It's like, you know, they, they won't win. We, ha- we have to act like we're, our, our ideals and our lifestyle are not being threatened by them. So, so that's the kind of the motive. That's, that's, that's why terror works, because it's supposed to scare the shit out of people. Uh, hate crime a hate crime, although it's different in different countries and it's different state to state here in America, basically most states define a hate crime as any crime based on a belief regarding the victims, race, religion, color, disability, sexual orientation, national origin, or ancestry. So it's about, it's more about what the perpetrator's thoughts are about this quote unquote victim and who they are. It's about identity is what it's about. It's, it's identity. So, 
Uh, I'm a a person who um, believes in Smurfs. And um, I think that all people who are on Sesame Street are um, should not be allowed to be on Sesame Street because those are Muppets and Muppets are different than Smurfs and Muppets should not be um, that. I just don't agree with Muppets. Muppets shouldn't be here. So uh, if I were to, uh, let's say, shoot a Muppet. I don't know which one I would shoot. They're so cute, all of them. But if I was a Smurf person, I guess I would have to pick one. Uh, I would be, that would be a hate crime. That would be a hate crime. Uh, Now, if I were to um, have some sort of ideology about Muppets, (laughs) I suppose, (laughs) and uh, uh, decided to um, blow up a bus uh, about it, uh, I would be using uh, kind of terrorism to uh, advance my ideology about Muppets. So is it a hate crime or is it terrorism? This was the big kind of uh, different conversation this week uh, around the Orlando shooting. Um, and people were concerned that if it was just seen as a hate crime, that it would be marginalized because as we know, people in the LGBT all the other letters in that thing, uh, community, uh, it are marginalized. I mean, that's part of that's part of the reason that, that these things. And if it was a terrorist attack, then it's at least brought up to that level. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking it feels like both to me in some weird way because the guy clearly had homophobic issues, and clearly radical Islam is extremely homophobic amongst many other lovely things a radical Islam is in the ism thing. So, uh, and yet, holy shit, a mass shooting and once what they call a soft target, which is just talk about euphemisms, people. Soft targets, really? That's how we talk about things like public places where people are? Uh, The lingo is just so weird. But um, talk about you know, this is the the worst mass shooting in the history of the U.S. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm just kind of sitting with all of that. Um, so my kind of my conclusion is terrorism or hate crime is kind of comes from the same place within a, hu- a human on some level. I mean, one is kind of a ideological thing, but it's like whether it's brought to you by radical Islam or radical Christianity, uh, it, you know, it's it's still about it's still about an ideology, uh, you know, and in this sense, it's the you know that America has these freedoms, um, and then it's targeting a very specific uh, group of people. Um, and the radical Christianity, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw this clip or not. Pastor Roger Jimenez from the Verity Baptist Church of Sacramento, lovely, he's in California, uh, was asked, are you sad that, uh, uh, no, he, he asked his, (laughs) this is what he did. He was talking to his, uh, people in a church and he said, uh, are you sad that 50 pedophiles were killed today? That's what he called them, the the 50 gay, lesbian, LGBT people. 
Uh, he says, no, I think it's great. I think that it helps society. I think Orlando, Florida is a little safer tonight. The tragedy is more of them didn't die. The tragedy is I'm kind of upset he didn't finish the job because these people are predators. They are abusers. I, 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 and there was like, there was this guy and there was like another clip too of another Baptist guy talking very similarly in this way. And uh, I don't know, this guy doesn't sound very different to me than people who are members of ISIL. Uh, it just, they don't do mass shootings, I guess, yet, these Baptist people. Um, I, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm stunned that Americans in 2016 believe that gay people are pedophiles <laughs> like that like they equal each other um uh, you know this is when Jung's shadow work really helps explain things to me that when you reject within your own self that you don't you know when you say to yourself well I'm not that person I would never do that or I don't have that urge inside of me but the reality is is we have we have every urge inside of us. Uh, some just live more strongly than others. Some we identify more with. Some we have more of a penchant towards. Uh, we all have somewhere inside of us murderous rage. We all have a terrorist inside of us. We all have a pedophile inside of us. We all have um, a, 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 a saintly person inside of us. We all have a rock star inside of us. We all have these aspects of self these these archetypes if you will of ourselves uh, and they're all either their emotions there are um, points of view uh, they're all in there because we're all humans we're all basically have the same kind of wired brain and we all came up from the same animals and reptiles don't forget your reptile friends uh, so when we pretend that we're not these people or that we don't have some, you know, like if, if we're not in touch with our own personal anger, uh, it, it comes out in weird ways. And sometimes it comes out in very dangerous ways. And yes, some people are need like major anger management or maybe major, <laughs> major other kind of management of violent people. But the, the point is, is that these radical Christian Baptist people who say these things, uh, they are so afraid of their penises, just to begin with, I'm, I mean, and they're so afraid of pleasure and there's just the whole, you know, cut off from the body thing. I, it, I just, I mean, I could not believe when this guy said these words. I, I'm still in shock. You can hear it in my voice, clearly. So, I I don't really understand the line between ISIL's ideology and using the Quran to be homophobic versus a Baptist's use of the Bible to be homophobic. I don't understand how you cross the line between being in a church in Sacramento and just saying that versus um, purchasing a gun and going out and killing people over it. Uh, these are things that are very cloudy to me, and, and it's a very gray area. 
Uh, I don't see the difference. I see it from a psychological point of view, an anthropological point of view. I don't see the difference in these political terms versus hate speech or terrorism. I mean, they're legal terms, mostly, thus the legal dictionary. Uh, All I see is a bunch of tribalism. I just see a bunch of people saying it's us versus them. This is where this comes from. You threaten my in-group, you're the other, you know, and the other is always a projection of our own shadow. This is what I believe as a psychologist. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, I want, I want your people in village destroyed, no matter what. Like, if you don't, if you come up, like, I'm afraid you're going to come into my village and destroy us first. So I'm going to go over there and destroy you. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thinking. There's no, uh, there's no relationships. There's no trying to work it. There's no even wanting to find out about this other village and these other people. It is kind of funny that I'm saying village people, right? I know. Um, but literally, your existence threatens mine. That's kind of what it's about. And and life is complicated these days. I mean, I get it. You know, the modern world is very frightening to people who want to believe that. Um. We were all better off before Eve plucked a piece of fruit off of a tree. <laughs> but that's going way back, people. I mean, that's like, that's real. That's going back to a really magical time before humans even had consciousness. I mean, that's really what that time is about. That Eden, that that mythological Eden is when we were still more animal than human, that we didn't have a lot of frontal lobe, we didn't have a sense of ourselves on the planet, that there was some sort of magical at oneness with everything. But, you know, but we also didn't use tools yet and things like that, or maybe very sparingly. I don't know the whole arc of that. But um, so it's, it's a romanticization of some time that is was probably never really here. It's 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 pretend thinking, and to think that you can terrorize the world in back into the Stone Age, which is kind of what ISIL wants. I mean, or, or at least m- m- medieval times when theocracies were in charge of everything, uh, and no one had rights, and there was a, a warlord uh, in charge of your tribe. I mean, that's, that's, you know, so, so modern life is terrifying for these people and everything that comes with modern life. And, you know, I get it. I'm not a fan of everything in modern life. Uh, With every bit of uh, progress we've had as uh, humans, uh, there's always 10 fucking problems we create with each thing. I mean, that is the nature of progress. Uh, But uh, boy, uh, life in 2016 in general is a hell of a lot better than even a hundred years ago. I mean, have you watched the Nick? Have you watched the human experimentation of human surgery (laughs) on the Nick? That's from a hundred years ago. I mean, literally like, hey, let's try to uh, do a a cesarean on this woman. Oh, she's bleeding out after two minutes. Okay, I guess we didn't do that right. Human experimentation. So, you know, in general, modernism is a good thing. It, It really is. Is it killing the planet? For sure. Do we need to change shit? For sure. But in general, positive thing. Um, so yeah, this kind of tribal behavior thing makes me think that uh, 
it's kind of like the mammal brain. I mean, you think about like herds of animals, you think about the predators, you know, this is my, I think about like lions, right? You know, like this is my group and that's your group over there. And I think that's kind of where some of our wiring is and it kind of gets mixed up and then we get things like guns. Oh, joy. It'd be like giving a lion the ability to have an AR-15. Not a good thing. But it is, you know, the human brain is there. So part of our mammalian brain is in there and it's tribal. It is. It's herd like in other ways. Uh, it's based on fear and scarcity. Um, and then, you know, there's this whole part, which I hadn't even brought up yet, which is the whole imaginary people thing, the God thing, the imaginary forces and places, the idea that uh, there's a man in the sky oh, who's uh, decided that uh, he's got the truth. No, no, you've decided he's got the truth. Sorry, there, because there is no man in the sky. So he hasn't decided anything or she. Uh, you have decided that there's a man in the sky telling you what's right or wrong because you don't trust yourself. <laughs> so you need a book to tell you what to do. And this book tells you some things that you can interpret any goddamn way you want. You can interpret it with more compassion for other humans, or you could interpret it that we need to kill all these motherfuckers. That's not a very good book, if that's the case. Um, but yeah, so with, this is all, so it's all magical thinking too. I mean, that's the scary part, right? That these people, these radical Baptists, radical Christians, radical Islamists, uh, radical Buddhists, radical Hindus, radical Jews, all the radical ones um, are using a lot of magical thinking to take care of their own fear, scarcity, and uh, imposing them on us through hate and terror. Wow. So, uh, and, and the thing is, is that when you read these older books, Old Testament, New Testament, the Quran, you, you literally hear about the tribes. I mean, it, it's clearly tribal. It still is tribal. I mean, this is what all this started. Iraq, one of the reasons going into Iraq was such a bad idea was because uh, the fear of Saddam Hussein used to keep all the tribes uh, playing nice with each other. <laughs> and so the Sunnis and the Shiites had to get along, but uh, they don't anymore. So ultimately, it's about this definition of we. And I believe that as we evolve our human consciousness and evolve past the reptile, reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, into the human brain. And inside the human brain, we even evolve our consciousness more and more that our idea and definition of we gets bigger. We include more. And that's one of the big conversations in America around identity politics is we, who are we? You know, uh, the founders of our country, founding fathers and mothers. Uh, well, there were no founding mothers because the we didn't include them. <laughs> the, the ladies couldn't vote. The we did not include the African people we had stolen from Africa. They weren't even considered humans, we's. Uh, you know, the Native American people in uh, Mexico and, and America and Canada, they're, no, they weren't part of the we. Mm -mm. But there was some 
device inside this document saying this we is bigger though than it's ever been. That's one thing. And it's based on ideas of law, you know, human basic human rights, the enlightenment, as they called it. So so it had a chance to grow the we. And we as a country do that. We grow the we. We acknowledge African Americans as humans, uh, the right to vote, women get to vote. Uh, people get special protection now because they're, they weren't considered we because of that book we were talking about earlier, the Bible thing. Uh, gay and lesbian people, uh, disabled people, whatever it is, you know, protections for these people. The we gets bigger. The we gets larger. Oh, the we includes animals. Let's take care of our animals too. Oh, the we includes the environment a little bit. We're not too good in the, in the environment part. We still see it as resources. We don't understand that we are actually part of the environment yet. I mean, some of the more sophisticated thinkers do in the government, but most people just see it as resources. But that's the next step. That's the whole environmental movement. We need to take care of the planet because we are the planet. Hmm. Without the planet, there be no we, the humans. So the we gets bigger. Um, and that makes some people very uncomfortable like uh, Pastor Roger Jimenez from the Verity Baptist Church of Sacramento, uh, who calls himself a Christian, <clears throat> uh, because I believe Jesus liked the we. He liked the we. He brought we in. He brought lots of people in. Remember that part? Yeah, I know. We go over that a lot. So it's 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 kind of the battle of the we. <laughs> We want big we, they want small we. (laughs) There's a penis joke in there somewhere, but I won't make it. Um, Instead, I'll talk about guns because that's pretty much the replacement of the penis. Uh, Because the other part of it is there's just too many fucking guns in the world. I'm sorry. We don't need all these guns. And I get it. Let me tell you. I had an AR-15. We used to shoot the AR-15. It is a fun gun to shoot. But you know what? You go to a gun range to do that because that's where you're allowed to shoot those things. And it, you know what? It fills your body with a sense of raw, violent courage. It's intense. It is good. I mean, good in the sense that it's like, oh, I want more of that. Uh, But not, that's not good all the time to have that. But I understand it. Uh, But the problem is, is that too many people, and I don't, I'm not a sociologist, but just too many people are emboldened right now to use violence to express themselves in the world. You know, when your teacher says, you know, when you're a little kid and you're frustrated and you want to throw something and your mom says, you know, use your words. That's what I want to say to the world. World, use your words. That's what diplomacy is versus war. Do you understand that? That's where the line is there. Diplomacy uses words. War uses weapons. It's the same conversation, though, actually. Strange, isn't that? And, you know, if you don't give the young men of the planet, the young men who have a lot of testosterone and energy and not many constructive ways to channel it, 
and some of them have no vision for a future that belongs to them. Uh, if you don't give them a way to use that energy and that passion and that rage in some other constructive way, and even though I think sports are the stupidest thing in the world, that's kind of the point of sports in our culture, people, is to channel that energy during those teens and those 20 years and 30s, I guess, too. But really, that's part of the point of sports is to give men something to do to channel their need to fuck other people up or be competitive or win or all of that stuff in a way that doesn't kill people. Of course, we've found that with football, people are uh, the whole concussion thing. But anyway, this this is the point of sports is actually it, it channels that energy a little bit. So I, I, that's a, just a discussion for another day. But that's that's another thing. Um, and then, of course, I haven't even talked about the fact that there's just way too many fucking people on this planet. There are just too many people here with just too many people. <laughs> Don't you feel that way? I mean, I do. I feel like, oh, there will be a virus at some point. The virus will come. They'll probably knock off about half of us. And that'll be the only fucking saving grace for this species and this planet. <sighs> anyway, and prayer. Oh, okay. So let's just, we'll finish up here with this. So prayer. So these lovely um, politicians come out and say, and these are the guys who have, you know, are in the NRA's back pocket. And they're like, so, oh, and they asked the governor of Florida. So what can people do, governor? Um, after this shooting, well, they can pray. Really? <laughs> um, I get it. It's lovely. Um, I Maybe you believe in that God, Mr. Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker. Uh, and I'm glad you're including all these people and their families in the sentences you say to the entity you believe will change things. But... Uh, it doesn't actually do anything. I hate to tell you that, Governor Walker. It's just, it's not enough. It's not. Um, actually, to change the world, you have to go out and do something in the world. Uh, and luckily, there are people who are doing, there are tons, thousands of people in this country who are fighting for the good fight for many, many different things. Uh, and don't just pray. And maybe they pray and do good things. But that's kind of the point is you got to do the good works too. So if you want to change something, you actually do have to either donate money to a cause that you support or call your local or state representative or whatever it is. Or uh, you may have to actually leave your house and take to the streets to let the government know that you're pissed off and you're not taking it anymore. These are things that we actually get to do in this country. Um, and when you do these things, it gives even though it is a frustratingly broken system, it does give some politicians the balls to do something about it. And uh, the other thing too is, which is kind of similar to praying, uh, which Rick Overton talks about in his act about how um, we think we're doing something by posting and reposting and liking. <laughs> it's like online activism and you can, and signing petitions is a good thing, but uh I'm completely guilty of this. Oh, I'll just like that comment. I've done something today about abortion rights. Yeah, no, you haven't, Kelly. You've just liked someone's post. 
So it's almost as empty as praying as liking someone's post around this stuff. Um, but the cool thing is that this week there, there was so much outrage over the Orlando shooting that it, it cracked something in people. And it cracked something, especially in people who were in the media, because most people in the media, um, at least the people who are on the personalities of the media, not the people who run the media and own the media, are progressives. And they have a lot of friends in the LGBT community and were devastated by this news, especially because it was Gay Pride Week here in Los Angeles. And so there was a lot of things on the late night shows, but it felt different this time. And how could it not? I mean, after Newton, Connecticut, or Newtown, Connecticut, uh, how could I mean, a bunch of children were shot? How could nothing change after that? So there's been a lot of, as Obama says, a lot of mass shootings he goes to and talks to family members afterwards. But what was exciting was yesterday, uh, Senator Christopher Murphy of Connecticut filibuster, filler, filibusted uh, for, I think it was 14 hours on the Senate floor. And what was cool about it is that he was emboldened to do it because he knew that this was a chance. This A, this is an election year. This is a time to do something like this. this is a, the GOP is weak. Um, so we can maybe stand up against the NRA. And he also felt there was some sort of shift happening in people. And he got up there and for 14 hours, he held the floor. And, uh, and, and some of the time he spent actually reading tweets and posts from people who were supporting him. And I guess there was a couple of hashtags that were trending. And so this is when social media actually has some power, because it, it emboldened him and it knew, let him know that people were behind him. And it let the leaders of these parties know that people are behind him lots of people are behind him like 70 percent of the people in the united states believe that there should be common sense gun laws around these guns so even though humanity is a hardwired to be tribal and kill each other at times and um that modernism is terrifying and that it's changing the shape of the planet in our lives and that even though there's some good there's some bad in it and even though um our particular democracy has been in uh, just uh deadlock <laughs> for the last seven years it's still a system that tries to work and tries to do good and yesterday even though it's not a perfect system it did i think step one millimeter towards justice um, because the GOP are actually willing to talk about this issue finally. <sighs> but I don't, it just, it shouldn't take people dying like this for the, it's, it's just amazing what it takes for any of us to change, let alone a country. But we all know that we all know what it takes to change in our lives. We all know that we, we shouldn't be eating certain things and we should be exercising more. We probably shouldn't be drinking as much. Um, that we should, you know, a lot of shoulds in our life that we should be doing. But we don't because we don't know how to change. Because change is hard. Change is not easy. So, you know, changing an individual life, life is hard. 
changing a system filled with millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, is really, really hard. Change. I'm fascinated by change. So, uh, so I decided to make a change in my life. And if you don't know, if you don't follow me on the social media, you wouldn't know. But uh, I have uh, decided to take a social media summer sabbatical. And that means starting yesterday, midnight, uh, and the evening of June 14th, I walked away from Twitter and Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. I mean, really, who cares? <laughs> who goes to LinkedIn? I really, I'm not a sales associate somewhere. I don't go into LinkedIn. Yes, I have a lovely LinkedIn profile. And I did work on it last week. Uh, but who cares? And Instagram, yeah, not my thing, really. I will be posting some photos there this summer uh, because I love pictures and photography was my uh, initial art form in high school. But uh, as far as Facebook and Twitter, me no there right now. Me not there. So I don't, I can't, cl I f can't figure out, should I classify this as an act of sanity or insanity? <laughs> and as everything in life, as we know, it's both. It's for sure both. It's an extreme act of sanity on my part. Oh my God. So for like the last eight, practically eight years, seven and a half years, I have been on social media, just like the rest of us, because we all signed on in 2008, right around there for Facebook. That's like when Facebook started getting some momentum and all your friends were like, hey, are you on Facebook? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm never gonna, I'm not gonna, that's, that's, I don't even understand what it is. I mean, what? Huh? Why would I? And then before you know it, by the end of the year, you were on Facebook because other people were. Uh, and then Twitter, I was like, yeah, well, I'll be on Facebook, but it's not gonna be on Twitter. What kind of, that's crazy, 140 characters? What stupid, what a stupid way to communicate with people. Yeah, I got on Twitter. And actually loved it more than Facebook. Uh, because these places, as you know, you've been with me on this podcast, have changed my life. They're amazing. The people I have met, the th opportunities I've gotten, uh, th the ability to speak my mind. It just, you know, it, it's been an amazing thing. So, but, oh, eight years eight years. Do you remember what it was like before you lived on social media? Do you remember what it was like where the only way people you could find out about your friends is if you emailed them or you actually called them or walked over or drove over to their house? Do you remember that? Do you, can you wrap your head around that? I couldn't. So that's part of the reason I'm doing this because I want to see what was that? What's that like again? I want to remember what it's like to not know what's going on in all of my friends' life all the time. And I especially don't want to know what people think about everything all the time. Uh, so it's been about 39 hours. I'm fine. No, really, I'm fine. Really, it's great. <laughs> no, it is going well. Uh, so here's some of the reasons I'm off of social media and I'm going, I'm making a pitch to you people. It's my pitch to you. So I want you to join me. Hashtag social media summer sabbatical. All right. So a, the, just the whole echo chamber thing, just the whole thing, like 
Even if you have friends on Facebook or Twitter that you don't agree with, it's still an echo chamber. You're basically just getting a big reverberation of thoughts that you already agree with or see. I mean, how often on social media are you really challenged? Do you really engage with ideas that you don't believe in? And if you do, good on you, I say. Uh, for me, for the most part, it was just irritating. So I would just block those people, <laughs> creating my own echo chamber. Uh, and here's the thing about the dialogue, whether it's mainstream media or social media, for the most part, only certain parts of conversations are going on, unless you seek out other ones. So uh, it's an echo chamber. And then the other part of it is, is that I you know that thing that happens when you go online and you go to your timeline and you just read all what's going on? You're like, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no, oh, there's a news thing. Oh, there's that thing. Oh, oh, Bill Moyers. That's nice. Okay. Oh, cat thing. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Oh, she got a waiting. Oh, that's great. Oh, mom died. Oh, that's, a, oh, look at that. Okay. Like within 30 seconds, you have had a roller coaster of life event emotions going on inside of you. You've been excited, you've been disgusted, you've been amused, you've been bored, whatever it is. It's, there's like this crazy thing that happens in a minute or two when you read your timeline. It's all these emotions, all these things. I don't know what that's doing to my brain. I, I mean, I kind of know what's doing it. It's making it crazy is what it's doing to my brain. I have way too much. It's like a ping pong match in my head. So I want to just get away from that. I want to not have the intense roller coaster five times a day when I check my timeline. And of course, it's a political year. It's a political summer. Uh, this shit's going to get ugly. Whatever side you're on, it's going to get ugly. And if you want to stay informed, you can stay informed without being on social media read the New York Times, you know, read, read Mother Jones, read the nation, read uh, the Atlantic, read whatever, right, left, center, read it all. But read things that are like 5000 words. I highly recommend it. Um, and then the third thing about why I'm leaving for the summer is uh, my darling father. Love him. But uh, here I want to I want to put you into a scenario. Imagine, because it's true for some of you, that you've lost a parent in the last seven or eight years. And um, part of the wonderfulness of social media is that you had a community around you to hold you during the initial loss of the parent or a loved one of some kind, husband, wife, child, dog, best friend. And there was a, there's a lovely coming together of community and you felt lifted up and you felt like you were in a safety net of love around this loss. And then there's a natural kind of part of grief where then you deal with the fact that they're no longer here and there's an emptiness and you have to face the emptiness and you have to kind of refigure your insides because of that emptiness. And from that emptiness and that reconfiguration, something new is born. And even though you still feel pain in your heart and a loss, there's kind of a new branch on your tree of life that you are. And this is now the branch where you, are, you were the person without that person in your life. And things come off that branch, fruit and leaves, and a new bird nest is built on it. 
Now imagine that at that point in the loss and grief natural state that um, you don't actually get to miss that person because that person shows up, their name and their face shows up 10 to 20 to 30 times a day in front of your face on your social media timeline. And it's, they're all mostly lovely things that show up. People are telling you how much they love this person you've lost, or they share a picture of them, or there's a funny video that they made that they're going to share with you, or they're going to tell you how much this person changed their life. They're all, these are all lovely, lovely things. But the problem is, is that the, the natural pacing of grief and loss is not able to happen. And this is what's happened for me now, is that you know, the natural arc of this for me needs to happen. Um, I got to write a book about my life with my father and my mother and my life and my struggle in finding my place in the world and the shadow of my father and the dance of the father-daughter dance and the dance of the mother-daughter dance. Um, And I'm so honored that I get to share that story and my love and our chaos and my outrage and my confusion and my frustration with my parents, all of it's all in there. But now I, I, I need the part where they're not there anymore. Where there's they're they're just not here. And that when they when they do when they do come up, it comes up in a natural organic way, like, oh well there's there's that sweater my mom had and I wear now. Or oh yeah, my dad and I went to that restaurant once, you know, when you drive by it. That kind of thing. Um I need that now. And so I'm really looking forward to having three months where uh, I get to miss my my dad in a way that's really organic and normal. And I get to have a space where he doesn't occupy anymore. So uh, I'm excited about that. And when I get back in the fall... Uh, there's always going to be things I'll have to promote for myself, of course, and for my dad. And I don't know how I'm going to work all this out. I don't know how I'm going to be able to relate to fans anymore. Um, but I'm going to look to people like Roseanne Cash and other people that I've seen who've, who kind of moved on from that conversation. So it's it's complicated. It's very complicated in these day and age. But at least for three months, I, I get to find a new way around it all. So no more Trump, no more Clinton, no more dad. No more outrage, no more freakouts, no more trolls, no more trolls. Imagine that. Uh, no more friends arguing with other friends. Uh, watched at midnight last night, there was a hashtag war. Yeah, no poll to play hashtag war. I'm like, oh, I won't be doing that for three months. Even though you people will beware, because in the fall, I will kick your asses with the hashtag wars. And of course, as we know, nature abhors a vacuum. So, you know, you remove something and a vacuum occurs. And so, you know, within the last 39, 40 hours, of course, my vacuum has been filled with anxiety. (laughs) Because isn't that what it's all staving off ultimately? The minute you feel a little anxiety or a little discomfort, you reach for your phone. Hey, let's have some distraction. Let's look at a timeline. And then it's like kind of um, manufactured anxiety or distraction or pleasure or whatever you get out of the timeline. But so, yeah. So and then the other thing that I'm going to be dealing with with this is another part of the experiment that I'm really excited about is the whole ego part. Because, you know, like I said earlier, I learned to speak a thought out loud 
because of Facebook. I remember the first few times I posted on Facebook an opinion I had or a point of view about something. I'd never done that in public before. That's something my father did. I did not do that. And and I kept myself paralyzed and silent for many decades in my life because I feared that people would have a reaction or have some sort of input about my ideas and think I'm stupid or crazy or ignorant or whatever, um, that whatever that fear is that keeps us quiet. Um, so Facebook taught me to, to, to not only speak my mind and to have thoughts and to kind of concoct them and to put them in ways that were entertaining and truthful and wise, hopefully, but it taught me also how to have conversations with people who had different opinions about it. Uh, it thickened my skin up a lot. Um, so it's weird because I've been reading journal entries from 2006, 2007. I'm doing some research right now about, about some things. And, um, and it was before Facebook. And I could, part of like my longing was like, oh, I want to be seen and heard. And I want to be able to speak my truth in public. I mean, this is a huge obsession of mine for years being in my father's shadow. And, um, and then I think about it now The 2006 I was reading these and I'm thinking it's 10 years later and I've had, you know, uh, 120 episodes of this podcast, endless guest spots on other podcasts, people's YouTube panel shows, of course, written a book, uh, been on TV, tons of radio, blog stuff. I've tweeted over 80,000 tweets, people. <laughs> 80,000 tweets. That's more than 10,000 tweets a year. I don't even know how many tweets that is a day. But even if only one tenth of them are like original thoughts, that's still like 8,000 original thoughts that I've actually shared out loud. That's a lot of fucking sharing I've been doing. And that's a lot of ego gratification. Because a lot of what I've gotten online is people supporting me and saying, yes, I hear you. I see you. Oh, my God, that's great. I've retweeted you. And then, of course, you know, you live for the retweet. At least I do. You know, oh, how many people retweeted that? Oh, that was so clever of me. Oh, who liked it? Who put a heart thing next to it? Oh, my God, I'm such a good human being. Um, so this summer, I will not be sharing all day. My ego is going to have to deal with the fact that about, um, I don't know, I haven't counted. I would love for somebody to count how many like little ego gratifications a day you get by posting online and then like seeing the reaction to people. Is it five? Is it 10? Is it 20? You know, who knows? I mean, it but it's enough. It's a lot of mirroring back saying you're just you're wonderful. And you're the center of the universe. And we worship you. That's at least how the ego takes it. So I will not be doing that every day. I will not be getting that ego gratification. I'm kind of excited about that. And of course, terrified, just terrified. Oh, my God. And thus the anxiety. And I'm guessing the depression's coming next, too. I just don't want to eat my way through this summer. I just don't want to gain 20 pounds because I can't. I don't have 20 pounds to gain. I've already gained them. Uh, so anyway, I will be on the podcast here every week, almost every week. I am traveling a little bit. I'll be traveling uh, in a few weeks out of town, out of the country, actually. Uh, but, you know, and I'll be on my blog, too. Uh, if you don't know about my blog, it's Polymind Consortium on Blogspot. Uh, go check me out. I'll be blogging more often there because all those fascinating, amazing things that I think about to tweet about and to post, I'll be doing a little bit of that on the blog too. Uh, and longer pieces too. 
but I still have shit to say, people. Uh, I just don't have to read your shit. <laughs> okay, so here's the complicated part. Here's the vulnerable part for me. I want you to love me. And yet, part of me hates that. Hates me for that. And hates you. I know, that's a horrible thing to say. I'm saying that to my listeners right now. But... I am not the first person to think it or say it because I was watching Bo Burnham's special this weekend, his new special. What's it called? Happy? Happy something? What's it called? Make happy. Okay, you have to watch the special, you guys, because it's all about this. The whole thing is about our culture and making happy. But there's a part at the end, like the last 15 minutes, 12, 15 minutes, he talks about this very thing about us performing for each other, for ourselves. We're all on a little stage. And the minute we're all on a little stage and as performers, there's some part of us that loves it and needs it. And there's another part of it that hates it because we are prisoners to it. We are prisoners to this endless ego gratification. So, Go watch Netflix, Bo Burnham special. But Logan and I have kind of stolen a little piece of it off of YouTube. So I'm going to let you listen to that right now. I went to Kanye West's recent tour, the Yeezus tour. It was a big, dramatic, theatrical show. He did something very strange at the end of his show where he ranted for like 20 minutes. It was kind of a rant, kind of a song. He had auto-tune on his voice and there was an instrumental in the background. Like this instrumental. Talked about his problems. Race, power. His $90 t-shirts weren't selling very well. That was most of it. And I watched this. I thought maybe I could do this. I'll be honest, my problems, not as high stakes as Kanye's, but I have problems. And maybe a crowd in New York would be nice enough to indulge me. So as we get to the end of a night of theater, and comedy, and sweaters coming on and off. I got one question for you. And that question is... Can I say my shit? New York, can I say my shit? I got lots of shit to say. I got lots of shit to say. my hand inside a Pringle can. I have a huge amount of trouble fitting my hand inside of a Pringle can. I can get my hand like four inches into the can, but then I have to tilt the can into my mouth. But by that point, a bunch of crumbs have accumulated at the bottom of the can, so they all go spill it onto my face. What I'm trying to say is the diameter of Pringle cans is way too small. I'll say it again, the diameter of Pringle cans is way too small. Two radiuses of a Pringle can is way too small. If you feel me, put your hands up. Come on. If you feel me, put your hands up. Look at all these hands that are way too big to fit inside a Pringle can. Your hands are too big to fit inside a Pringle cans. Your hands are too big to fit inside a Pringle can. 
You think you can. I know you can. You think you can. Pringles, listen to the people. I am sure 90% of the complaint letters you get are about the width of your cans. Just make them wider. I've overdone the Pringles thing. Sorry. I want to have a daughter. Want to have a daughter. So I can finally have someone around the house who can fit their hands in a Pringle can. Yes, I'm still on the Pringle cans thing. Yeah. I'll, I'll move on, all right? But that is priority numero uno. I don't go to the gym because I'm self-conscious about my body. But I'm self-conscious about my body because I don't go to the gym. Irony can be so painful. That's a catch-22. Let's do this. I went at Chipotle. Went at Chipotle. Got myself a chicken burrito. I went down the line. I got like all these ingredients. And then at the end of the line, the guy tried to wrap the burrito. But half of the shit inside the burrito spilled out. He still wrapped it. I was like, dude, you should have warned me. You're a burrito expert. You should have told me halfway through. Hey, man, you might be reaching maximum burrito capacity here. Do you think I want a messy burrito? No one wants a messy burrito. The whole appeal of a burrito is that all of the ingredients are contained within the confines of the tortilla. I wouldn't have gotten half this shit if I knew it was gonna fit in the burrito. All right, look. I wouldn't have got the lettuce if I knew it wouldn't fit. Wouldn't have got the cheese if I knew it wouldn't fit. Wouldn't have got the peppers if I knew they wouldn't fit. I wouldn't have got, 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 got half of it like I'm okay with small mistakes. If you got no more chicken, I'll take pork. But I'll blow my dad before I eat a burrito with a fork. Wouldn't have got the lettuce if I knew it wouldn't fit. Would I get the cheese if I knew I wouldn't? Would I get the peppers if I knew they wouldn't? Man, I wouldn't have got half a bit like, half a bit like, half a bit like, half a bit like, half a bit right now. I think it's time, I think it's time that we break it down. <laughs> Sit here and pretend like my biggest problems are Pringle cans and burritos. The truth is my biggest problem's you. I want to please you, but I want to stay true to myself. I want to give you the night out that you deserve, but I want to say what I think and not care what you think about it. A part of me loves you. Part of me hates you. Part of me needs you. Part of me fears you And I don't think that I can handle this right now Handle this right now I don't think that I can handle this right now I don't think that I can handle this right now I don't think that I can handle this right now I don't think that I can handle this right now So look at them, they're just staring at me like Come and watch the skinny kid with a steadily declining mental health And laugh as he attempts to give you what he cannot give himself I think that I can handle this right now 
So that was Bo Burnham. Go watch the whole thing. If you don't have Netflix, you'll have to wait, I guess, till it's out on iTunes or whatever else it comes out on. But uh, I cried through the end of this show. He's, oh my God, he's so genius. It's so beautiful. And he so gets it. It's so, so beautiful how much he gets it. Um, and so I'm going to end today with just a little talk about someone else who used to get it my dear friend Gary Shandling. I've not talked about him yet here. As you know, we lost Gary. Uh, we lost him. We didn't lose him. We knew where the fuck he was. He fucking died on March 24th of this year. And I know I might have mentioned it a few times. I don't even know how much I've talked about it. But I have this beautiful book in, in front of me right here that um, Judd Apatow created for Gary's memorial. And it has this picture on the front. Uh, I will take a picture and I will put it up on Instagram at the front of this book. It's Gary with all of his scribbled notes in his hand on uh, stage at Largo, walking up to the microphone. It's so Gary. But the reason I want to bring up Gary today is because Gary was a friend of mine. And um, if you listen to the very first podcast of Waking from the American Dream, he was my very first guest. He believed in me in so many different ways. It was amazing. But... <clears throat> The great thing that Judd did about this memorial that he put together for Gary was that about one third of the memorial was about Gary's comedy and his amazing career and his groundbreaking shows. Um, this is the Gary Shandling show and the Larry Sanders show. As Judd said, after Larry Sanders Gary didn't do a lot of things and people would always ask Judd or people would ask me because I knew they knew I was friends with him. What is he doing? What is he doing? Well, he's not doing anything. Where is he? And as Judd said, the man reinvented television twice. What do you want him to fucking come back and reinvent it again? I mean, that's the level of kind of pressure as an artist. I believe Gary was under. He didn't talk about it to me about that, but it was there, of course, because the only way Gary would come back into the world of television as if only if it lived up to his impossibly impeccable standards, and it would have to reinvent everything again, because otherwise, what's the point for him? He didn't rehash anything. So one third of the memorial was kind of focused on Gary's comedy career. And some people came up and talked about that. Another third of the memorial was really about 
and it was really what underlined all of the memorial, was Gary's friendships and his ability to mentor people. And that he had mentored Judd for 27 years, I think it was. Uh, Sarah Silverman. I mean, she was a teenager, I think, when she first came out here and he started helping her, talking to her, mentoring her, um, helped her find her voice and stage persona and all of that. Um, and he, you know, he, he just, he, he was just, besides a mentor, he was just this great friend. He would be there for you for anything. And um, maybe he'd show up late because that was Gary. <laughs> you just add 15 or 20 minutes to the time we'd agreed upon. Uh, but he would show up. And, uh, or he would say something like, oh, I don't know, I'm so busy, I'm, but I want to be there. He'd always give himself a little out in case he was overwhelmed that day and couldn't make it. But he, for the, I mean, and for me, he showed up at every single iteration of my solo show. He saw it when I was on stage making shit up and kind of talking on my feet down at the Magic Comedy Club Lounge. He saw it when I was at Santa Monica Playhouse and had put it together and hadn't rewritten it yet. He saw it when I'd finally rewritten it. He saw it when at the Acme. He saw it at the Falcon. Uh, he saw it in every iteration and always gave me notes and encouraged me. So he was just this incredible friend. He was just there for people. And so many people got up at the memorial and talked about that. But the coolest thing about the memorial was that a, a, about a third of it was also about Gary's spirituality and his Buddhist practice. That was just woven throughout the whole memorial. And you don't see this at a Hollywood memorial. You know, the Hollywood memorial is always the, the, the big highlight reel, you know, the reel of the career and all of that, and funny stories on sets and things like that. But the best stories were the stories of Gary's friends talking about their friendship and the people who Gary's spirituality and conversations about spirituality um, touch them deeply. And I was also got to be one of those people in Gary's life. He and I, that's basically what we talked mostly about. We talked a little bit about work, but mostly about our egos and, and what it all means and how to be in this business without letting your ego completely take over how to be on stage and let your ego move out of the way so that you are completely present with what is in the moment and with the audience and that you're not protecting your reputation, but you are putting down things that keep you from being fully present there and really finding the moment and the real gifts of the moment. And part of this beautiful book that Judd put together. There's tons of pictures and stuff. And then there's pictures of handwritten notes from Gary's journals around his own struggle around this. Um, here's one. He's going to uh, host Saturday Night Live. I don't know what year this is. Saturday Night Live is next week. Remain loose. Have fun. Be funny. Have fun. Commit to working. Have fun. Concentrate, underlined. And write during the week, work extra hard, sacrifice. Then you'll have two or three weeks off. Gary loved having two or three weeks off. He'd go to Hawaii. He continues, remain yourself, have fun, release 
and work hard. Oh, rehearse and work hard as though it was your show. So there's the craftsmanship, there's the work ethic, and then there's this other thing, which is the have fun, release. I mean, so many times in these notes, he writes, have fun. Like he has to remind himself that this is supposed to be fun. He is a comedian after all. Uh, here's another one. Give more to others. Get outside yourself. Keep your heart open. Have fun. Keep mind clear. Have fun. Make it fun for them. Have fun. Open heart, kindness, truth, compassion, joy. Follow your instincts. Follow your instincts. Yes, Gary. I'm going to look for one more here. This is such a, there's a really good one here somewhere, and I know it's near the back. Uh, it's just amazing stuff. All right, hold on. I'm going to find here. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> so this is what Gary and I would talk a lot about is being, letting everything be part of it. So he wrote, no doubt, no hedging. Don't resist anything. That's life. You can't hold on. What are you holding on to? Let go. Choose death over life. Courage to let go. Gary was okay with death. He was a practicing Buddhist for over 30 years. He really walked the walk. He really saw that in the end, there's nothingness and that it's okay. And then he really saw that it was all love. And um, he gave me such courage. And, and it was so weird after he died all I could feel for three days, besides the shock, of course, was just this deep, deep gratitude, such deep gratitude for him, for all that he gave me, because he not only encouraged my voice and encouraged me to go for it and to step into my own light, but he always reminded me that it really is all bullshit. The whole business is bullshit. And that it, all that matters is what's happening in the moment in any moment, whether you're writing or performing or having lunch with a friend. And he was one of the wisest Buddhas I ever met. And people would be surprised by that. And there were people at the memorial who were there who had no idea about Gary's Buddhism or his, his deep spiritual nature and his deep ability to really let it all go. And that was so beautiful. I thought as I sat there throughout the memorial that, wow, if this can happen at a Hollywood memorial, if we can be talking about these things, about letting it all go, and how ridiculous this town is, and this work, and how meaningless it is at the same time that it's the only work we have, so it's fully meaningful to us. If we can talk all about that, that there maybe there's some hope in the world. And, uh, and then at the very end, uh, Adam Sandler came onto stage 
with his guitar and there was some other people musicians on stage with him and uh adam said judd asked me to come here and sing this song uh i will not be singing a funny song today i says i guess i've never been on a stage and not sang a funny song before so i'm kind of weirded out by this and uh, i don't even know what i'm doing here singing this song because fucking tom petty's sitting in the front row he should be up here singing this song and i was like yeah he fucking should shouldn't he like people don't you think we should get tom petty up there but no and um but then Adam said, and he, Adam said, I wasn't really familiar with this song. But when I began to learn the song and I really listened to the words, um, I thought, wow, this is exactly the perfect song because this is exactly who Gary is and what Gary is about. And so I'm going to leave you today with the song not Adam Sandler singing it. It's the original singer, Mr. George Harrison. And the thing about this song is that when I was a kid, this album, this song, the Concert for Bangladesh album was my spiritual awakening. George Harrison was my first spiritual teacher. So to have this song being played at the end of the memorial of that night, um, I fell apart. <laughs> I started to cry and I could not stop for about 20 minutes. So as I was walking through this fucking A-list Hollywood fucking cocktail party after this memorial, I was sobbing like a like a very sad person. And I didn't care. I didn't care because I knew it was more real than any of the bullshit that I could have thought should be more real like my reputation or oh my god, it's Norman Lear over there or any of those moments. I knew that my sadness for Gary was just what needed to be in the moment. So I leave you with George Harrison. I will see you or you will hear me next week. I won't see you uh, unless you come on to SoundCloud and comment uh, underneath this show or comment on my blog, um, the blogs that I'll be making. Uh, that's the only way I'm going to hear from you. Unless you know my address, which I hope you don't. No, no offense. Uh, and you don't have my phone number. Uh, you may have my public email. And uh, so enjoy. Enjoy the week. Enjoy George Harrison. Uh, thank you, Logan, for being here. And uh, we'll talk next week about some changes that are going to happen on the podcast. And be well and uh, go for it. Come on, jump off. Jump off. Jump into the cool water with me. Have yourself a social media summer sabbatical. All right, here's George. <laughs>